With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. You're listening to the Hockey Podcast Network. New shows every day. Find us at thehockeypodcastnetwork.com or wherever you get your podcasts from. Folks, if you'd like a personalized copy of my new book, Tales with TR, Fights, Film, and Folklore, plus a personalized 8x10, shoot me an email at terryryan2020 at gmail.com. And for only $25, I'll send it right to your door, plus shipping. That's terryryan2020 at gmail.com. Get your personalized copy and personalized 8x10 today. It's everyone's favorite tournament of the year. The golfers are in Augusta, Georgia to compete for the coveted jacket. And DraftKings, the leader in one-day fantasy sports, is putting you in the center of action by giving you a shot to land in the green. This week, DraftKings is giving you a free shot at the $1 million top prize when you download and sign up using promo code THPN. If you haven't tried DraftKings, this is the time. It's easy to play. Pick six golfers, stay under the salary cap, and submit your lineup before the tournament tees off early Thursday morning. Then sit back and follow the action. Download the DraftKings app now and use promo code THPN during signup. This week, DraftKings is putting you in the action with a free shot at the $1 million top prize. That's code THPN, and you can get a free shot at the $1 million top prize only at DraftKings. Minimum $5 deposit required. Eligibility restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com for details. Yo, yo, yo. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, good to be with you again this week. Hope everybody had a good Easter, is having a good Easter. It's kind of surprised the kids are on break, to be honest. I really expected them to be in school this week. I guess there's legislation and union rules for all that, I'm assuming, and that's that's great. We're all together, but... The last thing Penny Lane needed this week was a break from school. In any case, it's all right. We're getting through and we can see the light. Seems a lot of my American friends can see the light a lot quicker than we can. I don't know. I'm just uh, judging by what I see on the news. 
But I'm thinking in a two or three months, uh, most of the stadiums, as far as sports goes, now we're a hockey show here. Um, I think they're, they're pretty much going to be full. I don't know if I can say the same for Canada. I don't want to get political. <clears throat> it's probably going to go that way. But mm. In case, hope you had a good, good Easter. We had a pretty, I got to be honest, like much like many other parts of this year-long negative cloud that has been a pandemic, we were all right. You know, I spent some quality time with my daughter. That was the main thing and my family, not just my daughter, but she definitely is the glue that holds it all together. Uh, Danielle came down. We had a nice bite to eat with my parents. A couple of real relaxing days. And then Penny Lane and I actually went to see Godzilla. And it was all right. It's, uh, it's funny, you know, when you're seeing someone that's 11 years old and, and what they do and you, you take for granted often the perspective they're seeing it from. So I mean, you know, it was an it was a popcorn movie. I, I don't know if, if you look up popcorn movie in the dictionary, I would think this would be it. I don't even really know how to define popcorn movie. You know, a, a lot of nowadays, I guess, CGI, a lot of special effects storyline that pretty much follows a formula. Uh, some famous actors, a huge budget. You know, a lot of times the, the uh, saving the world is involved. You know, th th that's what I would think comes in my version of a popcorn movie. And, you know, they, they, they often, you know, they, they follow the same formula, like I said. But if you're, you know, if the only real adult movie, which is, is it adult Wonder Woman? She's been to would be Wonder Woman. I, I guess it's not a cartoon, you know, or it's kind of starts to be geared towards 10 and up rather than 10 and under. So that was really the only one that she's seen. Now, she likes Stranger Things. But uh, when we went out to it, I dragged her kicking, screaming. But it was like, you know, it was 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock. Uh, it was morning. We were, I think we wanted to go to the noon movie. Anyway, she kicked and screamed, I don't want to go. And I, I don't like forcing Penny Lane to do anything. But she's also real stuck in what she likes. So we wouldn't, we wouldn't have moved past bread, uh, milk and like chicken nuggets if i didn't really have to force her once in a while to try something different uh each it was uh, just the whole way growing up really stubborn rather than watch a new movie like chicken run on netflix she would want to watch frozen for the 10th time and a battle trying to get her to watch the one just and i had to go look 20 minutes at a time that's uh, honestly almost every time still i'll say 20 minutes at a time penny lane if you don't like it after 20, you can go in and usually she forgets about it. We always end up finishing the movie. And anyway, this was that. But uh, we went out and I really was kind of skeptical on this one because it's one of those, like I said, popcorn movies. But uh, she loves Stranger Things and Millie Bobby Brown was in it. She, uh, I think that's her name, the little actress there, um, teenager was one of the main characters and so she loved that but it gripped her she she absolutely was blown away we left and her eyes were big as beach balls and she talked about it and we always talk about themes and characters and that's not just for the movies i've always done that with her because i think thinking that 
way it kind of helps you write papers when you get older and everything. Maybe I'm old school. Maybe I'm wrong. But I don't see anything wrong with talking about themes and characters and plot lines and what do you what stood out to you and what didn't. And she talks about it now. I haven't been on set, you know, from a she talks about the movie uh, from behind the scenes and always like my my elbows always being nudged. Daddy, how do they do that? Daddy's that one CGI or is that not CGI? Just constantly, which is great because whatever she wants to do, I'm glad she's curious. Because, you know, you don't get anywhere without being curious and wanting to learn. So it's come, it comes natural to her, I guess, is my point. But um, it was, you know, again, it was a good movie. But it, one other thing that, you know, so it was, like I said, it was, it was popcorn. It was exactly what I thought it was going to be. But uh, something that I got to say is all right. And I, I think nowadays, you know, Again, I don't want to get political, but for example, we there was an uproar a few weeks ago about uh, Dr. Seuss, and you know all the Dr. Seuss books are pulled off the market. And I thought, geez, that's a little bit much. Then you look into it a little bit, and you're like, it's not really, and they're not being pulled. It's the company that makes them, with Dr. Seuss Incorporated, whatever it might be. They're making a decision, and it wasn't all the Dr. Seuss books. It was one that had like some questionably racist themes. Now. Did I think it was that bad? No. Um, am I part of this society of, you know, rooting for everybody get a ribbon? Certainly not. I think that lays some, but that was a private decision. Jeez, I was agreeing with people. I was like, yeah, I can't believe it. I thought like legally that got taken off, but that was just a private decision. So, A, there was no reason to get up in arms about that. But second of all, I, I do think, I do think it's a pendulum, though, right? Society, think about what's accepted, right? We, we're, we're not the only ones to live in a civil society. Think of Roman times, you know, and that was, it was a, other than electricity, they pretty much had everything we do. I mean, the Roman Colosseum, think about how innovative that was. We're still playing hockey and basketball and football and whatever, we're, you know, baseball, whatever it might be competition sports concerts you know that romans had that on the go over 2000 years ago man but they also uh took I'm, I'm thinking mostly slaves and fed them to lions and shit for people's entertainment we're still human there must have been people going having popcorn going daddy is this really do we need this? You know, otherwise we'd still be doing it. So human civilization and cultures change and they swing. Everybody gets a ribbon, of course, I think is way too far left. Just as storm in the capital is way too far right. Most of us are somewhere in the middle. But the point I'm going to make is that in the movie Godzilla, um, there's a couple of main characters. One dude is a, is a black guy. He's an engineer and he's pretty funny. And the, the, the one of the main characters is a little girl. She must be 10 years old, maybe less. Um, and she's deaf. But it kind of is, it's, without giving any of the way, it's, it's kind of tied into the storyline a bit. But I kind of like that, you know, and, and she's a, an Asian, little Asian girl. And, you know, that really didn't exist. And I think it's all right. People should be represented. You know, again, I don't want, and, and I'm, really not trying to be political here, but 
you know, if I think about it, like I loved Superman with Christopher Reeves and there's nothing against them. It was a different culture. I also don't think we, we don't think we should go back and penalize people for decisions they made 30, 40 years ago when that was the norm. But if you watch it, you know, there's certainly not a lot of multicultural layers to those movies. Um, Star Wars a little bit. That was ahead of its time. So was Star Trek. Looking back, Star Trek was way ahead of its time. But most Right. Look at the Twilight Zone or I, I don't want to bonanza. I, I don't call out all shows, but I, you know, I did folklore. There's something to what I'm saying. There, you know, all we all weren't really represented evenly. Right. Hollywood was. Was Hollywood, but it's. Um, it seems that, you know, we went and Penny Lane pointed that out, too. And she was like, wow, you know, that little girl's a hero. And I was like, yeah, you know, little girl's an Asian girl, less than 10 years old. Um, with, uh, with who's deaf and has to battle that adversity. And usually you just would never see that before. So I think that's a good thing. People should be included. If I lived somewhere that I was the minority, I'd want to go to movies and see someone of my likeness represented, you know, just anyway. I thought the movie was okay. I much preferred Nobody. That was an awesome movie um, with Bob Odenkirk. I went to that the day before, but I'm just pointing out, you know, I think it's a good thing that uh, all cultures are being represented and you're starting to see that in everything from movies to hockey even. You know, I mean, it's really starting to open up. Hockey's all over the world. There are leagues now. I mean, pretty much everywhere, pretty much everywhere. And that's a great thing. Um, because it's a beautiful game. How about that? How I, how I tied all that together. And speaking of a beautiful game, my guest today, Ryan Vandenbush. So I'm going to tell you about a little bit about Ryan. Those who read my second book know that he hit me pretty hard. So, and those who listen to this know, you pretty much know by now, if you didn't see any of it by me beacon about it, you know, I, I got in the odd fight and I was, I looked at myself as a middleweight, but I guess looking back, you know, a lot of people would say, hey, you were tougher than that. I don't know how you would rate toughness. I certainly knew who not to pick on. And, and sometimes like fighting Domi and stuff that was I knew that was out of my league. But it, it was a combination of having those moments. Some would say balls. You could say stupidity, but I don't know. I also thought I could do it. You know, I was like, I, I wouldn't have gone in thinking I was going to get my head smashed. I knew that was a possibility I was going to lose, but I always figured, you know, if I'm losing too bad, I'll just go down. And I quickly realized that I could take a punch. I'm not saying I, you know, most of my fights were either draws or a slight win one way or the other. There wasn't many that I knocked a guy out or, or the other way around, but this was one of them. So uh, we were in Chicago in preseason and it was late in preseason in 97, 98 now, Vandenbush had just uh, knocked out Nick Kiprios. Now, he's who Bushy got over 300 games in the show if he got one. And uh, he's known that kind of defines him. I mean, it was the argument against fighting forever. And, you, you know, I'm, I'm not going to get on either one side of that either. Um, if I'm going to say anything, I'm going to say two guys squared off and they knew what the consequences could be. I've never felt mad at hockey or mad at the person who knocked me out when it happened, put it that way. Or for the fan feeling bad for me, don't. I knew what I was getting into. 
Um, we're just saying, we, we, we talk about this fighting in hockey. Well, if you ask the people that do it and they want it, and, I mean, overwhelmingly majority, an overwhelming majority, sorry. I mean, that's all. I just, speaking as someone who did it uh, and played and, yeah, you know, so I, I, anyway, without getting into my personal thoughts on the subject, which I always do, I'm, I'm, I'm totally open-minded for those that don't want it, but I'm saying in this particular situation, I'm in camp, okay, and I knew that Vandenbush had done that to Kiprios. The whole hockey world did. It was viral before viral was a thing. It was on every sports channel. I had it on a VHS somewhere, DVD, whatever, uh, recorded. You know, he was in, it was... Ryan was playing for New York Rangers where Kiprios had won a cup just a few years before Kiprios was on Toronto. And anyway, you know, they started going and then one punch just put Kiprios down. He's out cold. There's blood leaking out of his motionless head. I mean, it's a scary looking thing. It is a very, very scary looking thing. And I could totally, totally understand someone looking at that going, we got to get this out of the game. Again, it wouldn't be me because of that one incident, but I can totally understand it. So get on with the story T-bone. So, we went to play, and I was having a decent camp. Uh, decent meaning I knew, we had some injuries, which was bonus for a kid like me. And it was, I believe there was a spot on left wing, because Corson, I remember Corson was hurt. Um, Benoit Brunet was hurt, and Scott Thornton was hurt. And that's three wingers. I don't even remember thinking about it like that at the time, but I know that those guys were hurt. I went back and did my research for the book. And so... In other words, if three left wingers were hurt, for sure I was still there and I was auditioning with, part of, my, part of the story is that I was on a line that particular game with Sylvain Blouin. Now, Sylvain Blouin was a pretty tough guy. He, that was the only thing he was doing was auditioning for that team was for fighting. There was no other part. I, on the other hand, again, I think I'm pretty tough. I wouldn't even mind flight and, flight and sly. Uh, he played for Hartford one of those years I was in the A. We nearly went at it. But he was a pure pure fighter i i still don't like the word goon but he was a a, a real you know he was there to fight I, I was you know the guys he was going to fight if i did all right it would be you know if i was the fight sly I, I could win but you know he's i'm really dancing around it here point is i he was trying out for the tough guy role okay and technically i wasn't i feel Oddly uh, cocky when I'm saying that, but that's the way it was. Looking back, I was a first-round pick, so it was kind of insulting for me to play on his line, to be honest with you, to be honest, right? It was the fourth line, but I was getting the odd shift up on the third. I danced around that, but what I'm saying is that, yeah, I felt insulted by being on the fourth line with Sly. I forget who the centerman was. I may have been playing center for that game, but... It was like Dave Moore said, or, or someone, someone that wasn't going to play on the first two lines either. So and you always look at who you're playing with. And I was trying to do the math in my head. So I remember being really stressed before the game, like you would be anyway. I mean, it's the NHL. You're trying to make the team. But we're in Chicago, right? And they had some real tough cats. Um, like I said, the, the one game I played against them a few after this, it was Cam Russell, Mark Jansons, and Bob Probert were a line. I ended up fighting Russell, but it was just always like that with Chicago when you went in there, man, at that era. 
usually in their history, to be honest, you know, I guess a couple of shows ago, Matthew Burnaby, right? They, they'd always seem to, he wasn't there long, but they would always seem to get those guys, the guys out there that were pugilistic or, or you know, Probert ended up there. Bushy ended up there. Ryan Vanderbush, I'm going to interview him in a sec. So anyway, we're, the first period goes by and I don't, I, I don't recall getting many shifts up. I, I, I remember being told I was going to play a little bit on the first line, but I didn't. I was kind of pissed. So the point is I was there. I was ready to go out and hit something or fight something. I want to be on the stat sheet, but I got, I, I went up actually with Turner Stevenson scored a goal. One of the only plays I really remember making, I faked a dump. I used to do that a lot of fake the dump. And didn't put it on net, though. I kind of just threw it over in the middle of the ice, and he was still streaking forward. And uh, I'd love to say he went in on a breakaway and went top shelf. But I'm saying the pass connected, and we got in the zone and ended up beating it into the net somehow. But, I, you know, I remember contributing, but I still wasn't really playing a lot, and it seemed to me that I needed to go out and do something. And to be honest, I wasn't playing well. That one play was a good play, but I just remember being burnt. I think it was... Uh, uh, I can't recall. I can't recall. I was going to say Tony Amante, but but someone, um, uh, Jeff Shantz. That was it. He had black blades, taking the draw. Yeah, Jeff Shantz. Um, that was him. He made a nice move on me, and uh, I remember that going whoa because uh, I, I it was still even though it wasn't my first camp, I was getting used to the NHL, but I felt overly confident um, in this particular game. I remember that thinking, you know, I want to get, get out there. I was starting to get over the nerves of playing in the NHL. So anyway, we see that Probert, Bob Probert comes out and he's with Ryan Vandenbush. I can't remember the third player, but there's two toughies, right? So, so I sit next to me on the bench and he says, you know, I think Bob Probert, I think he wants to fight. And I'm going, yeah, you know, he's a fighter. You're a fighter. I remember saying, you know, it's probably not going to be me. I mean, Sly, I, and to be honest, there's one guy I didn't want to fight was Bob Probert. And it was part fear, part respect. You know, you, when I say an idol, you know, boyhood, we have idols. He was otherworldly. He was like a cartoon character, like a superhero. And I, I, I don't know. I just, and not to mention, he's like the toughest player that ever played in the NHL. So, and I started, I just wanted to play. I remember one of those games. I was just like, let me out there. I felt like I was going to score, you know, and you, anybody who played any level, know you know what I'm talking about. Once in a while, you feel like you're in the zone. It's the NHL. Although, like I said, I wasn't playing fantastic. I just wasn't playing a lot. And sometimes you go out there and the ice opens up. That's what it felt like. I carried it a lot. I felt like I could make moves. It felt like a junior game. So, yeah, I didn't really want to be thrown down. So, anyway, Sly keeps saying this. I'm like, sure. Like, you know, you're going to have to go home. That's just the way it is. Uh, not that he wanted me to go, but he just seemed a bit nervous, like he would be. Not that Sly's not tough either. He's a killer, but that's Bob Probert. So, we end up going out for the draw. What ends up happening is that I'm lined up against Probert and he's lining up on the other side against Vandenbush. We're both wingers, right? With the centerman in the middle. But Sly looks at me, winks, and he switches wings before the faceoff. So I go over. So clearly Sly figures, you know what? I'm going to grab some nuts here. I'm going to fight Bob Probert. Place is packed. 
right? And everybody there loved Probert. And so I don't recall exactly what the fans were saying, but they were loud as soon as that happened. Because again, it looked like to me and everybody else in the building, Sly was coming over to fight Probert. So I go over to line up against Bushy. And then we had some friends, mutual friends. We'd never really, I don't think, hung out at that point. It was only a few times that we did over the career, but I don't know if it was Nathan Parrott or David Ling or one of those guys that I knew, and he played in St. John's, so I would go to see him play. I had met him before. We just weren't great friends, but I remember going over lining up, and Bushy says to me, and the place starts standing up like they're, they're, they're waiting for this fight. Now, again, in my mind, it's Probert Bluin, but I suppose, I don't know why, but it looked like I was switching to fight Vandenbush, and people are starting, you, I can start to hear it, right? You can see, hear people start clapping and standing in anticipation. Anyway, Bushy's like, okay, let's do it. He was kind of pumped about it. Because, again, it was camp. We're both trying to make the team. And anyway, boom, puck drops. We dropped the mitts, and we're going pretty good. We're going pretty good, uh, considering in my head I'm going, this is Ryan Vanderbush, and I don't really want to left it, leave his left loose because of what happened to Nick Kiprios. It literally ended his career. He broke his face. On top of that, it wasn't a lucky punch. Ryan Vandenbush was known for having a knockout punch, and there's only so many players ever that are known for having a knockout punch. I'm proud that I fought the way I did, and I would leave myself open, and I could do it, and I'm proud of the whole you know, hundreds of fights that I had, but I'm not being humble when I tell you I, I didn't have a knockout punch. Most people did not have this knockout hammer. Well, Ryan Vandenbush possessed that knockout fucking hammer. So really, we're going, and I'd love to say I don't feel the punch at the best of time, but I don't even remember this one. But I do remember I didn't go right, right down on my back. I, was just, I, I went on like one knee and, you know, just dizzy for a second and, and, and blacked out for a second. Dizzy's the wrong way to put it. It's, it's almost like, boom, you get hit and you see this for what me looks like a sun, like the outside of the, like a, like an eclipse. That's what it seems like I'm seeing. There's, there's light coming from, but I don't know if that's my pupil. I don't know what it is. If the fact that I can describe it is it happened way too many times. <laughs> right. But that's what it looks like to me. And then all of a sudden I, I felt like a little woozy. I, I felt nauseated. I felt like I was going to throw up, but I was on one knee. Bushy didn't hit me again. The place is going mad, and he's going, hey, hey, TR, TR, get up, get up, get up. All good, all good. We went to the penalty box, man, and I was, whoa, I was out of it. And looked over, and Bushy talked me through it, and he talked about playing in St. John's. I don't know if he'll remember that. Well, I, I doubt he. I mean, he's been in the penalty box 8 million times. But it meant a lot to me, for sure. And, uh, you know, like I've often said to you, the post-concussion syndrome that I had, always came from like a hit in, in an open ice hit. And, and it must be something to do with the way your head snaps or whatever, because that like I, I he definitely like he knocked me out for lack of a better way to put it. If I'm a boxer, but if it was a punch, then it would do exactly that. It knocked me out for a second. But then as time went on, I'd get better, better, better. By the time I got out of the box, of course, I knew I'd been hit in the face. It hurts, but I could play the rest of the game. Whereas, with the post-concussion hit, with the open ice hit, I was often, I mean, the worst case scenario was 96, 97, where I could feel it for almost a year. And after that, it happened three or four more times ever. The last time in senior hockey, I didn't even say anything about it. It lasted about two weeks.
And it was an accident. I was breaking out of my own zone and uh, on the power play, and me and another guy hit each other. Mm. But all those punches from all those people, and I never got post-concussion. Go figure. Um, but anyway, uh, so after that, uh, Bushy ended up playing the better part of the next six, six seasons for the Hawks. I'm glad I had something to do with it. Um, and But we did. I'm not going to say we kept in touch. Recently, we talk quite a bit, uh, but we have mutual friends. We came across each other. I think they had them drop the puck here in St. John's a few years ago when the uh, ice caps were here. I went down to see him. And now he's got a, he's, so that's that. Uh, Bushy now has a hemp farm, which I'm really curious to learn about and much along the lines of Riley Cote, who I had on here um, and a few more players that I know in the minors. I won't mention them by name. I'm not sure they want that. They're getting into hemp and it, they find it's helping with the anxiety and uh, the headaches and whatever it might be. Now, I don't think it's restricted to just fighting. I, I, I'm not sure that, Ryan is doing this because it helps concussions or whatever. I, I've had, I've talked about this subject before and I get a lot of emails on it um, or, or messages, but yeah, I, I just think generally that people who have some mental health problems or, and one is definitely a concussion for me, it helped weed. I used to think it was real bad, right? I was going through those concussions and, I even went to the Mayo Clinic, like the best neurological place in the world. And, you know, I went to this Even when I came out, like the doctors, I remember one guy saying to me, you know, have you, ever, have you ever smoked weed? And I thought that was really odd, especially in the States. I'm like, weed? But it really does. At least whatever it is with me, I get a lot of sight stuff. It's behind my eyes. I get pain, uh, light sensitivity. And it's, yeah, it's really hard for me to explain, but. Often when I smoke weed, and it doesn't need to be THC in it. I mean, of course, sometimes there is, right? I, um, but the um, just CBD, which for those of you who don't know, it's you can't get stoned on. It's just another compound that's in the plant. And so whatever is in that really helps me out with the eye stuff. And, you know, I find we, yeah, as I got to learn that, and you can get pills and all these other things. I found that really helped with my anxiety. And again, I don't know if the anxiety comes because you get hit in the head. I don't. Like, you know, people ask me at the time, what are the symptoms? I'm saying, well, when I had a concussion, I suppose you could say depression. But wouldn't you be depressed if your head, if you didn't know what was going on with your brain? Like, I, th I think it's a chicken and egg thing. I don't know if you get hit and then all of a sudden it pushes a button that makes you depressed. But when you wake up and you can't see your food and you fall down walking out the door, that is enough to say my brain is like I'm a computer and I'm not programmed the right way. That'll make you scared. So at least with me, that's kind of what happened. Now, anxiety, I've always been wound up um, and that certainly didn't help it. But I can't say why the symptoms that I get or sometimes we're human and we just have anxiety uh, or depression or whatever it might be. But 
Bushy looked into it, and he's dedicated his life into this now, and he really believes it. And I'd love to get to the bottom of, you know, what made him made the decision, make the decision. Um, like I said, he farms hemp. I don't know any much, but beyond that, uh, because you know he was a tough guy, and he, I know he got in a fight outside of a bar and got arrested in two thousand and six. You'd have to think that booze was involved there, not weed, but I don't really know. Uh, but, you know, you often hear these stories, and it's funny. I, I say the same thing. I used to drink a lot more than I do now. Um, but I, I'm, whether it's uh, s eat gummies or, or smoke or take pills, I find now that marijuana, you can also choose, right? Choose what kind you're going to do. Uh, and now that it's legal, you know, a lot of people seem to be open their minds more to it. But it was always, for me, more about healing than getting stoned. That's that's where I'm going with that. And I don't, a lot of people didn't listen to me for a long time, right? Because weed was weed. And it would be hard for me because you go get weed off a dealer and you don't really know what kind. There's all kinds, right? Like Jack Daniels isn't wine and that's not beer. And that's not scope, right? There's... <laughs> There's different levels of alcohol. There's different buzzes. There's different sugars mixed in. It's, it's like weed, right? I mean, the sativa versus indica, the indica will put you to sleep. Sativa, when I write books and stuff, if I'm going to do anything, it won't be booze or indica. You know, I'll, I'll ingest somehow some, some legal sativa mm, weed. That's what I do. And um, it usually sparks a creative bone and I don't have a hangover the next day. I'm assuming some of that is why Bushy is so involved and interested. And now he actually makes a career out of it. So this is what he's choosing to do with the second part of his life. And I am very, very interested. Without further ado, Ryan Vanden Bush, the hammer coming up. Ladies and gentlemen, my next guest is a veteran of over 300 NHL games with the New York Rangers, Chicago Blackhawks, and Pittsburgh Penguins. His pro career lasted 15 season, which, seasons, which included a two-year stop right here in St. John's on the Rock, playing for the Maple Leafs. These days, he is an emerging hemp farmer, of all things, in his home province of Ontario, which is seemingly a unique choice after a hockey career that included more than 2,000 penalty minutes. He is a passionate player, a tantalizing teammate, a no-nonsense NHLer, a proficient puncher, an outgoing Ontarian, a fair fighter, a fabulous farmer, a wild winger. He is known to be loyal and played for the Royals. He fought with his arms, and now he uses them on farms. He settled a lot of beefs on the ice here with the Leafs. He's in great health and played in Guelph. He traded booze for joints and played in Finland at one point. We chatted in the box. He was fairly nice after knocking me out one time at center ice. It went slightly better. I felt no pain when we did it again in Portland, Maine. His arm and fist have been compared to a hammer one sun summer night. It landed him in the slammer. People who like weed put their hands in cush. Ladies, ladies and gents, it's my friend Ryan Vandenbush. How you doing, Bushy? <laughs> oh, that's awesome. That's awesome, TR. I love it. How long does it take you to write up something like that? <laughs> I just sit there and start thinking of rhymes. Van, I do. Van, I do the the end one for Vandenbush was heard. Vandenbush was heard. Just go with bushy. It's a lot easier. Well, yeah, I, I, I that would have been a layup though. I, I, I said, you know what? I don't think anybody else has rhymed with Vandenbush. And hand hands and Kush makes sense if you're into weed. Oh, yeah. Those who don't know, purple right, Kush. Right. Totally <laughs> love it. 
and I wasn't looking for the relation, just the rhyme. So we landed on the weed thing, but we're going to get that ba- into that later, if you don't mind. No worries. Okay, so Bushy, tell me. I've always been curious because I know you got your start in Cornwall. You grew up in southern Ontario. Were you was were you aspiring to be a hockey player uh, as a young kid, or did you have other interests? What did you think you were going to do? Oh God, that's a good question. No, I did, I had no no idea I was going to play hockey professionally. Um, I grew up on a, a small farm out in a little hamlet out near Delhi, Ontario, tobacco country, and. Uh, worked in tobacco and I had a brother that was 16 months older than me that used to kick the shit out of me all the time. So, and then hockey was an outlet for me. Uh, I come from a split family and, and then uh, about 10 years old, my parents divorced and, and, uh, and then things seemed to get worse with my brother and I, and we always battled. And when I got to the rank, it was, it was always like, wow, I just, I love playing a game. It was just a nice release out there. And oh wow, uh, yeah. And then, uh, um, you know, little did I know I was playing double C hockey in Delhi. And then I made a junior B team when I was uh, 16 years old in Tilsonburg. And then they didn't really give me any ice time. So then I went and played junior C in Norwich. And then, and then the draft came up, the OHL draft, and that would have been 1990. And uh, I got drafted by the Cornwall Royals in the 14th round. And still then, at, at that point, there is, there is still no uh, idea that I was ever going to play pro hockey. I just was so happy to get an opportunity to go. And what, did you get drafted at that point? Were you a fighter or, I hate to say, you were only well, so Okay, so here's how I got drafted by Cornwall. And, and it was just one of the few games that I played junior B. Uh, we were in Chatham. Uh, Todd Warner actually tells this story. He was on the team then. He, he remembers this. And he says, I fought their team tough guy, their overager. And I did really well. And uh, there was a Cornwall scout there that said, hey, I saw this kid fighting Chatham. He's a 16-year-old kid and fighting a 21-year-old. Did really well. And so that's how my name got thrown in the hat. Wow. (laughs) Imagine. Well, A, 14th round isn't high, but it's funny that something like that would even land you getting drafted at the time. You know what I mean? Because like the way you explain it, which is really ironic that you fought off the ice and used hockey as a relaxing getaway and it all changed. So you and your brother then like, uh, you mean like everyday kind of arguments or do you mean you guys got in like fistfights? No, it it was nasty. Like nasty fistfights. They were nasty fistfights. It was to a point where my mom would, she, she would just cry. She couldn't do nothing. Wow. Like, and what, was it you know, generally playing playing a sport or playing a game, or do you guys just go at it like any you know brothers do? I guess you know. I remember this one time I come home from school and we couldn't he couldn't get the key in the door lock and he tried to kick it and I broke the key inside the door and I was just you know I reached puberty I was getting a little bigger and and I, I started yelling at him because he did that I thought it was dumb and he came at me and I remember my first punch and I got him right in the nose and my first time where I actually like stopped him in his tracks where he didn't beat me up. But that's wow. when I started realizing oh, I can fight now. <laughs> so how did, take- that's amazing. So it really helped you. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It did. Yeah, I wasn't afraid to take a beat when I got to the NHL, I guess. So you go into Cornwall, you're young, you're 16, 17. Were you a 16 year old? You were 17 when you went there. 17. 17. Okay. So you're still in stature. I mean, people know now, you know, there's guys that grow into the role. But you, you couldn't have been huge in stature going into Major Junior. I hear there was an Owen, Owen Nolan incident, or did you pick up for him or whatever? This is through the grapevine, and you told me this maybe 
15 years ago on one of the only nights we had beers. I think you were here dropping the puck for the St. John's Leaps, and you told me this story. Please resurrect it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I remember driving into Cornwall with my dad, and a and, uh, little side story here. I thought he shit himself. I told him to crack his window, and he thought I shit myself, and we realized it was the uh, paper, uh, pulp, pulp mill there. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyways, while we're driving in, he's like, you know, you're going to have to do something very special. You're a 14th-round draft pick, and you got to get noticed in a good way out there. So, you know, play your aggressive style and physical and, and let things happen from there. And uh, so that was my advice, you know, control what you can control. And I came into camp in shape. And, and uh, my first my first scrimmage, it was my second one, Owen Nolan was just drafted by the Quebec Nordiques then, first overall. And um, so he was going to our camp to get warmed up before he went to his major camp. And in the game, I, he was coming over the blue line and he cut across the middle of the ice. And I caught him with his head down. Nice, clean body check. He was pissed. And then puck comes back into our end, and it's coming around the boards. I'm a right winger, and I'm picking up the boards. And I know he's fucking coming after me. Yeah. And my head's down, but my eyes are up. Yeah. <laughs> and I caught him the last second. I dropped my shoulder into him as he was coming to get me. And he had a missing um, training camp with the Quebec Nordiques and missed the first three months of the season. So I got noticed that way. Then the team tough guy came after me, and I ended up fighting him, Marcus Middleton. He was six foot four. And did pretty good against him. And then, you know, shortly after that, I got my two teeth knocked out. Uh, one was knocked right on the ice, and then the other one was pushed back in my mouth. So that was, we had did two-a-day sessions. Um, so I, I got that fixed up in the morning after my first session. And I went back out this next session, and and and, and that's when I fought the Team Tough guy. Um, and then I tried to fight the guy who knocked out my teeth, but he didn't want any part of me. And then uh, Rod Pazma, tough training camp, Rod Pazma. Do you remember him? A second round draft pick. I know exactly who you're talking about. Yeah. 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 I was going to pass the neutral zone and I looked back to grab it and he stepped up on me and he just hammered me. And it was my first, uh, on that, my second major concussion at that time when I was 17 years old and I got up and I was just, uh, I, I think I went to the wrong bench and, you know, um, supper time, you know, my dad said I was repeating myself all the time. And so I, I, I took, the afternoon session off, spent the night with him in the hotel, woke up in the morning and started right back at it again. <laughs> it's funny, you know, like it's, it's really, I've never talked to you about this right before this started. I, I, I was, I went on a preamble kind of rambling like I do, but I talked about that. Like my worst head problem were when I got hit open ice, like that was the first time that I got one was in junior Kevin pop and he hit me and I'd been in all these fights and Right off the night didn't matter, and boom, that happened to me. And I was never the same skating through the middle. I was always like really because that that hurt me worse than any punch could have hurt me. I found like even when we we'll get into it in a bit, but when you hit me, it was one of the hardest punches ever in Chicago. But I saw black for a second. It's like seeing an eclipse. I said, you know, I, I know what that feels like way too much when you're in a lot of those fights. You know, you get hit right in the eye, and yep. it just goes black for a second. Yeah, I was on my knees. I felt nauseated, but. Afterwards, I, the next day, I can't really remember. I, I'm sure I wasn't fine. My, my face hurt a bit. But I found when I got hit going through the middle, like the next day, the next week might be fucked up. Anyway, that's my experience. I'm not sure what yeah. yours is. That's, that's interesting. Um, listen, so 
was it knockout punch right from the start? Were you learning, like, you know, the, the evolution of, I know Darren Langdon went the other way. Langer used to go for the one, and then he became a real good technical fighter. One of the best ever that I know of, not just saying it because he's my buddy from Newfoundland. I love watching Langer fight. He's a real smart. But you went kind of the other way. Your, your, your sweet spot is if you can get that free and hit a guy. It, was, was it always that way? Was it always the hammer punch? No, not necessarily. I, I learned how to develop a punch, you know, be more efficient with the, the punching. It really is an art, um, you know, keeping your elbows in. I, I was, I wanted to stay nice and tight, right? Instead of like throwing from back here yeah. from, you know, from down south, you, if you can learn to punch just as hard from your chin, uh, you know, and punch through the target, um, it's a lot more efficient. And, and that's kind of what I, I learned as, as the years went on. Did you practice it or was it instinct? I love asking that to tough guys. Some guys really worked on it. And, you know, some, some guys I played with just like, hey, I guess I can do it. I had, I had a heavy bag since I was 10 years old. I'd make my own. And then, uh, then I bought my own heavy bag once I, you know, built my own house. So, yeah, I've always been hitting a heavy bag. Well, see, that's bag. interesting. And that's no wonder because, you know, having a heavy bag, I think, is step one to having that kind of – approach to your punch right i was kind of by the way i mean i kept myself in good cardio shape but i never really practiced it i was more react i was more react as you can see uh your time at st john's you move on from there but before actually i move on from junior bushy 92 93 i also love this because a lot of fans I, I don't think they realize that a lot of these guys are in a role and they are good hockey players and i want to point out to everybody again this is ryan vandenbush one of the toughest players around 59 games played last year, junior, 41 points, 259 minutes. You know, that's pretty good. You're almost getting a point a game. So did your confidence as a hockey player, because that's going on as well, and you need that, that must have been a good year mentally, was it, to, have, to, have, to really contribute and to realize, you know, I'm a pretty good hockey player here on top of everything else? Yeah, yeah. I mean, at the beginning, I just, you know, I just wanted to make the hockey team and, and then, uh, you know, you, you get a few scraps, but you also want to prove that you can play the game as well. And, and that year I had a good opportunity to, you know, get a little bit of power play. I had a regular shift, which is half the battle. I didn't have to battle. You know, yeah. Years of junior, I don't think I had a regular shift. And uh, so, you know, my, my third year, I got a regular shift and I got, uh, I got on the power play once in a while. In the out time, they, they put me on a penalty kill as well. So, no, it was a fun year that you can play. Yeah. Uh, at what point during this process did you say, you know what, the NHL is realistic? Well, you know, I was drafted by the Toronto Maple Leafs in uh, 92. Where'd you get drafted, Bushy? What number? I was uh, 173rd overall, so it was uh, eighth round. I was their seventh pick in the eighth round. And um, never, you know, I, I go to training camp and, you know, fuck, I, I – I was just happy to be there and, and experience training camp. And then I knew I was going back to junior, but then the following year, I just was happy to go to training camp again and then make the American hockey league. They, they after training camp, they sent me on a little puddle jumper to St. John's Newfoundland and had Gulliver Cavs pick me up. I love those guys. Oh, and, Gulliver's uh, picked you up. Wow. Yeah. That's yeah. what they say. If you, if you can, if you can learn to converse with a Gulliver's cab or yeah. any cab, really, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you can get by in Newfoundland. It's another language. See, I, I, I was going, I didn't know where I was going. We were coming to this foggy area, the turbulence coming in. I was like, holy shit, where am I going? Oh, <laughs> yeah. I can I imagine if someone had never been here. And no internet or anything. Now Newfoundland is way more on the map. We've had things like, 
Oh God, even Gander 9-11, not that 9-11 was great, but it brought us, you know, in the national scene, uh, you know, hockey players, musicians, TV shows, the internet, none of that, none of that was prominent when you came here. We were an island in the middle of the Atlantic and everybody, and the Leafs had just come here, Bushy. So we were all going, what? Like for years, since I was two years old, they were talking about bringing some professional team. Yeah, right. No way is that coming here. And like, we got them. We couldn't believe it. You were one of, you were year two or three or, or three, I guess. I, I was like two years into you guys there already, I think. So how was it? You must have had a blast. Uh, I, I, you know what? I, I look back and it was the funnest time that I had in my pro career because oh, my great. first year pro and I came from junior making $35 every two weeks, right? To making $35,000 Canadian. I thought I won the jackpot, you know, <laughs> and in the first couple of weeks, you know, I wasn't even expecting expecting a paycheck. I look at the paycheck. I'm like, this is so awesome. And then the veterans are all bitching because the paycheck was late. And I'm like, what are you? I'm thinking to myself, what are you bitching about? I'm just happy to be here to get paid. It's not cost me anything, right? Perspective. Yeah. First year it. pro perspective. Guys in the room in the first round, guys went in the eighth and it's everything oh, in the middle. Keep going. <laughs> and then by the end of the year, I was like, oh, <laughs> that was a tough year. <laughs> stop, I don't get their checks on time. And you always want a little more. Uh, when I was uh, Chris Beardford, I've heard you talk about him before. A good buddy took care of me. Yeah, uh, yeah. Down still there. But, you know, the going road. If I was injured, Tierra, if I was injured, I'd be hanging out with fucking Beardsy and his clan for like two weeks because they, you know, you go on two week road trips when you're out there. Yeah. So this one time, like, we just like go. We went ice fishing, skidooing, and and then just uh, he just basically taught me how to drink alcohol. I look back, I'm just thinking, wow, the way we treated our bodies is just. As a professional athlete, you just have amazing? no idea. Young, yeah, and you know, is this if you can teach the, the new kids? Well, they are. They already know. It, it, nutrition is half the battle. They definitely know now. There's a happy medium. We were going out with no plan, just going. I mean, we had. I say to people like my dad's age, they used camp to get in shape. It wasn't quite like that when you know I had a program and stuff, but it was almost like. It was the early days that like I had the same program as like Valerie Burry, which would never should make sense. You know, there's different body types. We were told to work out. We got tested, all of that, you know, but but like we really do. People would recommend food and drink. But I mean, we could go eat burgers and booze every day if you wanted. Um, but everybody was doing it. So it's all relative. Um, right. Yeah. So I, I that's one of the things I do now. I help uh, to manage uh, turkey joe's which is now tj's pub but it's it, okay. it's similar all those because stefan hancock he moved to, yeah. he, he still owns the place he owned it when you were there now he, he he's in green sleeves as well um michael manning bernie manning uh, roly all the boys are still down there um and you know i know that was shack was shannon cody the trader trainer when you yes. were there one of the yes, men. Was. rest in peace shack okay you heard about that yeah yeah i did see that yeah, so no, it was a good crew there. It's funny, Bushy, like, you know, you guys, whatever, whatever team was here, I found there was a good, there was a real link for, for that era. Like you guys really, I'm not saying the growlers don't. It's also a different time. You can't be going out to the bar every night and, you know, there's different rules. There's different everything. But you guys really made an impact in the community. And, you know, Shaq would have definitely wanted me to, to say that to you. You see, I talk to Shaq all the time. He still sharpens my skates, right? Like, or did. And, um, but Shaq, we would often, you know, on Friday, I'd go for a skate. Uh, Shaq would be sharpening them up the road at Sportscraft. And, 
even to this day, we go down over the hill, down to Green Sleeves, nice live band or something. Um, Shaq would walk in, a lot of those same guys. So that kind of tradition never stopped. The street looks much like it did when you were there, and it's uh, a lot of the same people. So I just figured I'd say that. Uh, I I can't wait to get back there. I I really want to take my family. The last time I was there was when my wife was pregnant with my first, and that was during a lockout, like you said earlier and uh that's when we were sitting down talking but she never really got an, an opportunity to go experience george street so i learned after my first year living in, in newfoundland where i lived on logie bay road not far from the old stadium yeah. and then you know going to george street late at night and waiting for a cab is sometimes painful and it's really really cold so the following year i made sure i nestled up nice and close to george street and rented an apartment a block from george street <laughs> 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 And no questions asked, right? Now you'd have like a, a trainer, a nutritionist, the coach, the GM, everybody go, okay, well, you're, are you here? This is where you're going to be. Let's watch out. No and give a shit. You could live right above the bar back then. Right. Uh, so then you're in the A. Your time is good. Did you find a different in the difference in the pace? Because in junior the year before, you're playing a lot. Like you said before that, like Brad Myers said, he goes, before his last year journey, he said, I didn't really followed the puck much, but he said, now all of a sudden I am. Now you go from playing a lot, which is a step, to the American Hockey League. Did you, you know, and, and I remember those days. You didn't know me then, but I went to the odd game. The St. John's Maple Leafs were heroes in town. Uh, did you find the game faster? And if so, how did you embrace that? Or did you? Yeah. Um, so just kind of. Comparing it, like, my, my, my first – I found the game faster and bigger, for sure. And um, looking back, my first year uh, of Major Junior A was Mark Crawford as my coach. And then my first year of pro in St. John's, Newfoundland, I had Mark again. Yes, yes. So he knew what kind of player I was. And I think he had a lot to do with me getting drafted by Toronto. Ah. And um, he, uh, he he gave me some good opportunities in St. John's uh, my first year. Uh, but he he gave me enough rope to, to, to go out and play my style of game. But, you know, I never got a regular ship for the most part. Um, uh. But um, I, I found, you know, that first game when I was still playing junior, I, I, I got to play one game during my last year junior because we got beat out early. And uh, Mark called me up. And yeah, I just remember that first game being, yeah, the boys are a little bit bigger, a little bit stronger, a little bit faster. And that was, that was a big difference. But how was- also, at the same time, it was a little bit easier too. And I say the same thing about the NHL, making that step from the American Hockey League to the National Hockey League was, it was just, it was an easier game in a sense because everyone's playing their position. The passes are tic-tac-toe right on your stick for the most yeah. part. You know what I mean? There's, it's like chess hockey. There's only so many moves you have out there, and if you understand the game and you can move fast and make a play, uh, it, it's, it's it's pretty simple. So <laughs> I, I agree. That's that's one thing I noticed up top is it's it's way faster, but it's not scrambly. Like you, it's almost like I'm part of this moving piece. That whoa whoa okay, just jump on board and you're you're gone right. But the puck comes to you, and you don't even really have. Time. If you fuck up, you don't even have time to think about the fuck up. You just got to go right back where I found it, and I and I loved it. I, um, you know, didn't get to do it as much as you, but I remember embracing that. Like my first year junior, coming from junior A or going from that to major junior, I remember being a little bit more wary of the process or worried. I'm like, oh, will I ever get up there? But once you're there, you're like, well, there's nowhere else to go but up unless I make Team Canada. Like right. it's like a refreshing feeling. You know what I mean? Totally. Um, so you go from there to Binghamton. You know, I've never been to Binghamton. They weren't in the league when I was there. 
what kind of a place is that? And, and did, did you, uh, the Rangers must have traded for you in between there. Are they giving you messages now that you might be called? No, up? no. So, so here's how I, I was an unrestricted free agent after my second year of playing in St. John's and I'll get, I'll get to your answer there, but it's, it's kind of funny because any young kids listening to this, they should know. And I had great advice from my dad. After my second year of playing in St. John's Newfoundland, I had a really good year and I was going to get called up. Bill Waters called me up and he says, Ryan, you're playing really well. That's been Warren Reichel, Kenny Baumgartner. They were both injured with the Leafs. Uh, in the minors, we had Frankie Bialois, who's my roommate then that year. And then we had Kenny Whoa. Belanger. And those guys are both hurt. And, and I was fighting everybody and I was playing well and playing a regular shift. Tom Watt was our coach. And uh, I get a call from Cliff Fletcher or from Bill Waters saying, Ryan, you're playing really well. They're going to call you up. And I'm like, whoa. And that's my first time where I was like, NHL is near, you know, wow, that's my yeah. question earlier. I was like, oh. So then I get a call about, I don't know, 10 days later saying, uh, Bill Waters is like, Ryan, uh, you're not going to get called up. Uh, Cliff Fletcher thinks you're too small to be a tough guy in the NHL. So I was like, oh, fuck, I can't control that. So I didn't really want to put too much thought in it. Went out there and played hard for the rest of the year. So I'm going down to the end of year meetings. Wow. Flying down to meet with Bill Waters. And all of a sudden, my dad calls me up and he's like, Ryan, make sure you uh, ask him what the plans are for you next year. And I wasn't going to ask this question. And uh, make sure <laughs> that if you're not playing in the NHL, then you want, you want your release. <laughs> <laughs> so I get down there and I told him, I said, where are my plans? Well, you're expected to be in St. John's, Newfoundland. Uh, and I asked for my release and they gave me my release. They didn't have to. They, they, I could have been a restricted free agent, but they only had to offer me 10% more. Yeah. And they got my release. And then that's when I signed with the Rangers. Um, so as, a, as an unrestricted free agent. I love yeah. that, Bushy. You bet on yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And that was good advice from my, my father. So thank, thank old Ron Dog for that one. Uh yeah, that was good advice. He knew what he was doing. He had confidence in you. You're, your, uh, you're his boy. And then, just, so then I go to training camp in New York. So that was my it, next question. Go ahead. Yeah. So, and then I get sent down to to Binghamton, upstate New York, and um, it, it was it was a it was a hockey community. It was a small little dark barn where people did not like to go. We've had always a lot of tough guys on. I've team. heard that. You know, Eric Bolton and Sylvain Bluen and Peter Ferrantino and Danny Lacroix and a whole bunch of people. Eric Cairns was there. Uh, it was just, it was, uh, it was good times, but not a place that I wanted to be, you know, making $50,000 US now, a little bit better. But now I feel like the NHL is a little closer in reach because you don't realize when you see guys that you're playing with getting called up before you, you know, uh, and you're not getting that shot. Like, what the frick is going on here? So you continue to work your butt off, and then you get that opportunity finally, and, and you, you give it your best shot. And yeah, before 100% to get there and 110% to stay, right? Isn't that what they say? Well, they'd be right. Uh, before I move on to the next one, how was Frank Bialos as a roommate? That guy's always uh, fascinated me. First of all, his name nickname is The Animal, and I grew up here watching – the guy a little bit, you know, I watched a lot of games when you guys were coming through and he always fascinated me. I fought him in Philadelphia too. I couldn't believe it was happening, but even that felt otherworldly. His hair was like greased down to here. He had no tape on either end of his stick. He, he went around with no tape on either end of his stick that game. I was like, what the fuck's going on? Every, well, he, he was a very interesting roommate. Very, he's just, a, he, honestly, he's a big teddy bear. Just a big teddy bear. He would pray before I went to bed, you know, not matter what he did the night before, it didn't matter, but he was still praying, you know. Yeah, 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 yeah. 
but uh, he was a good chef, taught me how to play chess. Good, um, good fella then, right? I mean, these really, guys get really, these. Yeah, I know. He's a really good guy. He was, he was one of a kind, though. Like, you know, he just loved to fight. He loved to fight, and he did not care about taking a punch either. Like, for example, before every single game, part of the ritual is before we go on the ice, he'd want me to punch him in the face with my hockey glove on right before he skated on the ice. Whoa. Twice. Wham, wham. And he'd get pissed off at me if I didn't do it hard enough. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I'm glad I didn't know that then. Because, and I swear, you know what's funny? We were in Philadelphia, and the coach looked down at me, and for some reason, slide so bad. He didn't want to fight him, but it's not that he didn't want to. He had a bad hand or something. And, like, the place was mad, and it was Philadelphia and the minors, but the spectrum was packed. And, like, I looked around, and Tyrion, and Sly was right. He's like, my, my hand's all screwed up. Like, you want him to kick the shit out of me and the place is going to go mad? So I'm wearing the captain that game, the kiss of death in the minors. But anyway, I'm wearing it. It's my second year back in Freddy, one of the first games. Anyway, I, look, I, I go out there, and there was just nobody else to do it. And it's, there's more to the story. But anyway, he, he, he had his hands. He just looked over in our end and warm up, and he had his no uh, tape on either end of his stick, and he was just re- he didn't warm up. He didn't do anything. He just sat there yeah. looking. And then I was like, I can't. I'm, I, this is going to be another chapter. I'm going to fight. I remember coming in after I did, and it went okay for me fighting him. I stood up and I got a couple in, but I could feel like if he shakes me the right way and hits me, it's a freight train hit my. Face. And I just went in. I remember thinking, Whoa, I can't believe it. Like making a note in my journal, I fought Frank by Lois. Like, but he, yeah, I never heard him speak. He just. I'm glad to hear that he's a. Uh, you know, somewhat of a good guy. He just loved fighting. <laughs> yeah, no, he, he's a great guy. Loved the cup too. Uh, Bushy, 97, 98. You play on four teams, uh, even though touring the NHL, that, that it's always an odd part of hockey or sports. I say to people, I'm like, yeah, it's like billets in junior. No one ever really talks about it. And it's something that's major. Say so in like pro, you ask like, oh, you guys played in all these places. It must have been fun. It was. It was. But in 97, 98, you don't really know where you're going. You're in Indianapolis, Hartford, New York Rangers, and Chicago. So even though I guess two of those places are National Hockey League cities, which must be unbelievable to finally get there. The other half, how is it to move four times in a year in six months? Well, I was single. I had a suitcase, so it wasn't that big of a deal, and I had to do what I had to do. But that was the year that I made the Rangers from training camp. I won the overall fitness award that year and had a good training camp. And and then um, and then things changed. We weren't doing that well that season, so of course, when things change, it's easier to get rid of you know guys like me. So they sent me down to the minors, um, and then at the trade deadline, so they sent me down to Hartford. And uh, fought everyone down in the American Hockey League again at Hartford because you know what it's like going from the NHL back down to the minors. You're, you, you know, you're 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 a target. Yeah. So and then um, right at the trade deadline, I get a call. Uh, I don't know, it's a pregame nap, and I get a, I get woken up, and you got your trade to Chicago. You got your plane's leaving at seven o'clock. Get your stuff packed up. So I did. I, I got on a plane and, and went to uh, Chicago. I played one game in Chicago. And then uh, they sent me down to the IHL to play a couple of games. And then they called me back up and ended up fighting Dan Cordick. Uh, then I tore my shoulder in that fight. First, first 10 seconds in that fight, my shoulder popped out. You know, I think the Rangers knew I had a bad wing. 
<laughs> I was damaged goods. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Uh, and I knew I was damaged goods too, but I knew I had one impression to make with the Chicago Blackhawks. My first game there when I was traded there, I never fought. And the second game, I had another opportunity. And uh, I knew my shoulders going to come out, and it did. And you can see that on, on uh, hockey fights. But um, really? yeah, so I did well there. Then I was out for the rest of the season. But I didn't and, know. So you, you 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 pulled your shoulder out. Who do who were you fighting? Oh, I fought right out. I fought Dan Cordick right in front of our bench. Oh, okay. This is the Cordick fight. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So that was my. So then at the end of that season, after July first, I would have been an unrestricted free agent. So they, you know, they ended up signing me to my first one way contract that summer. So that's how I got to play four and four teams. I was very fortunate enough to get traded to Chicago and get an opportunity there. You know, and then uh, sign that summer. Now, when you say you made the Rangers that year, just to go back there for a second, out of camp, was that the camp that you fought Nick Kiprios? Yes. Was there any bad blood there? For those that don't know, I don't want to dwell on it. I'm sure that you and Kiprios have been asked this question a million times in some form or another. But anyway, it kind of defined both of you in a way, even though you, if you don't want it to. But, you know, because of the, the, the hockey and fighting, whether we should do it, whether we shouldn't, don't really care about any of that. That's been beaten to death. Was there any bad blood? And who started it? There was no bad blood. And um, in his book, I think he started it, but I knew I was going to fight somebody that game because, you know, you go through the roster and it's training camp and you got to score a score and fighters fight, basically. And, and uh, Domi wasn't playing that game or else I would have went after him. And then I was out on the ice with Kiprios and I think he cross-checked me first. And then it just, we just looked at each other and we went at it. Um, are you guys, do you ever talk about it now? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We did an interview on Sportsnet, uh, I don't know, five, six years ago, uh, talked about it. And I ran into him at the um, uh, Maple Leaf Gardens um, that following year. And, you know, uh, you never want to ever hurt somebody like that. You know, you, you, you meant your mentality when you're fighting in my head. I got to hurt this guy before he hurts me because I don't want to get hurt. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Well, you don't want to end the guy's career. And, and I just, you know, I end up hitting him with a good one. And, um, and, but no hard feelings. I talked to him and, and he, you know, he, I, it could have been easily me. So all good there. Hey, uh, no, that's great to hear. So it's funny. Just getting back to when we, when we fought, so it had to be in that time. It was 97, 98 camp. So it was in Chicago, but yeah, it was a long story, but I'm on the bench with Stoban Bluen and Sly says to me, he goes, he says, Probert, do you want to fight me? And I'm like, well, you're the fighter. Like, yeah, go fight him because it ain't going to be me. And I don't mean this in a humble or a funny way. Like I fought Domi when I was 18. I don't think I was ever scared of the act of getting hit, but just because, you know, an actual hockey fight, if you're, if you're in the fight and you've committed, it doesn't really hurt. Right. You, you, the next day you might have a sore face, but getting hit is actually hurts less to me than taking a body check. I don't know if you're, it's the adrenaline. So anyway, but, but Bob Probert, you know, a, he was one of the, I think he was the toughest ever. I don't insult anybody when I say that, but he had this persona about him and I loved him. He was like an idol. So I'm on the bench going, I'm, and I wanted, you know, I'm, I was a first round pick here coming on, going, getting the odd shift up. I had an assist earlier, but I was on the fourth line with Sly. So as we're talking about it, he says, okay, okay, I'm going to fight him. You know, I didn't mind Sly. I'm just on the bench. And I, I don't mean to say I was talking down to him. I was just like, yeah, you're a fucking fighter. You know, he's standing out there. In my mind, if you fight him and you do well, you're on the team. So is it worth half a million dollars to you? You know, that's the way I looked at it. So, But when we went out on the ice, what's funny is that he was lined up with you and I was lined up with Probert. So he looks over and gives me the wink and like 
starts to come over towards Probert. And then I, but I got the head start. So everybody starts, I knew what he was going to do, but everybody starts like, and it's, you know, exhibition. So they all know a fight's coming and Chicago is going madness. And you can hear people starting to clap. You can see them getting out of their seats. And I'm looking over to see the show. And you, you said something to me. You're like, okay, okay, perfect. Let's do it. And we had mutual friends. We weren't buddies or anything, but I don't know if it was Nathan Parrott or David yeah. Lang or someone like that, that we'd come across. Cause I, you, you call me TR and I called you bushy, but then you're like, okay, let's do it. And I was like, Oh fuck it. Look like, I know what it just looked like. Everybody here thinks I'm going to the other side. Cause I want a piece of Vandenbush Bush. Now, of course it wasn't so far gone that I said, I'm never going to fight this guy, but I was like, fuck, this is not what I wanted to happen, but we went at it and you were giving me kudos. Um, but you hit me. Yeah. You hit me. And I, it, like I said, it was one of those. I, I ended up on one knee. I saw that eclipse that I'd often see, and uh, you know, I felt sick for a second. But I, breath. By the time we were out of the penalty box, I was fine. But you talked me through it, and we talked about a bunch of other shit about St. John's. I think you told me a story. You told me about St. John's in the penalty box. Uh, but anyway, so I, I find I found that hilarious, and we ended up going back, going at it in Portland, which was a little little better for me. Um, but anyway. Oh yeah. yeah. I just figured I know it's your interview, but I was like, I wonder yeah, does he really know whatever happened? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I honestly the one in Chicago, I, I don't I didn't recall that one. I usually remember a lot of my fights, but um but yeah, no, that's uh that's when oh, I was just yeah. learning the punch. Yeah, yeah. It was um the one Probably. in Chicago was came out of nowhere. Yeah, and then I, I don't know, you were in Portland after that at some point because it was definitely after. Uh, well, so, so here, here's another le learning lesson for any younger. So after that season, the 97, 98 season, and I get my fight with Dan Cordick, and, and then I'm done for the rest of the season because my shoulder's messed up. Um, they signed me to a one-way contract. So I'm guaranteed, you know, half a million bucks for the next two years. And, well, you know, that summer, <laughs> I just had a pretty good summer. Yeah. <laughs> I come to training camp that year not in the best shape that I could be in. And I didn't make the team. Dirk Graham was a coach in Chicago. Sends oh. me down to the minors, sends me down to the IHL, stuck in a hotel room. And in a hotel room in Indianapolis, which is in the same plaza as a strip joint. And, you know, all that kind of shit. So here I am making a half a million bucks down in the minors, fighting everybody in the IHL. By Christmas time, I did not have an apartment. I asked, can you get me an apartment, please? I was about to, just moved into an apartment a week later. Nope. You're shipped to uh, Portland, Maine now. So now I go to Portland, Maine. Check into the hotel there. I'm in the hotel till I don't know, another month and a half or so. They fired Dirk Graham. Lorne Mulliken turns to be the coach. And then I get called up right before the trade deadline. And I finish the rest of the season up in Chicago. <laughs> <laughs> wow i never knew that i mean how would you so that that year i've been i was in a ton of fights i fought everybody in american hockey league and everybody in the IH, ihl and then, but it was a lot like you were saying I, yeah i was also i'm not gonna act all innocent i was down there and you were I, I'm, I'm looking around not that i wanted to fight but you know you you can always make yourself fight but you can't make yourself score and i was in that position like i and I, I, I always felt like more part of the team if I'm in the game. So it was just to the effect of like it was the third period. I felt like I was having a shitty game and you were there and you were saying yes to everybody. I see now why. Like you, you were taking on all comers. Not that I, I really stuck. But we, yeah, we, we got into it and, and there was no bad blood. It was just we both needed to get back up. So um, you, you get back up then. I didn't realize that. So now you get up to Chicago 
and where you make your home for the most part for the rest of the next six years yeah. with a really tough team. Um, and what I'm going to ask next it refers to Probert again. Do you, I've heard that he's, I met him one more than once if you count on the ice, but one time I spent some time with him. He knew Langer. He was doing a thing at Langer's hockey school. Seemed like a really, really nice fella. Uh, I'm sure he was humoring me half it, but you must've been the same. You're a fighter. You're coming onto the Chicago Blackhawks with a legend that's larger than life. I mean, what was it like to play with him? Oh, it, it was, it was, it was interesting. He probably was my roommate um, for four of the seven years that I was in Chicago. So I got to know him pretty good off the ice too. And, uh, you know, unfortunately I was a, was a ball bearer at his funeral too, but um, he, uh, he was a genuine wore, wore his heart on his sleeve and he'd give you the shirt off his back. He was just a genuinely nice guy. Um, had some demons, you know, that, you know, some addiction issues, obviously. And, um, but he, uh, overall, man, I, I he was, he was the best roommate that I've had. Very considerate. Always had to go through a checklist of things before you leave the room. They'll make sure he's not forgetting anything. And then, um, uh, yeah, I, I can't say enough about Proby and, and such a family guy too. Like he talked about his kids a lot and I was always watching the ticker of the stocks and all that kind of stuff and water skiing with his kids in the summertime. Um, and then, uh, this one time he, he taught me how to drive a, a Harley Davidson motorcycle. We're flying in Tampa Bay and, and he was like, Hey, let's go rent a bike. I'm like, what do you mean rent a bike? Cause I don't have a bike license. He says, don't worry about it. Aaron Downey, myself, our, didn't have our license. Bob Probert and Tony Monte, our captain at the time, both were seasoned riders. We go into a Harley dealership in Tampa Bay. They rent two Hardys. They show us how to drive in a parking lot. No helmet, no shirt, nothing like that. We don't have to wear a helmet while it's water, right? Get on the back of their Harley, drive to another Harley shop. They rent two more so that we take the original two. No <laughs> way. Yeah, so I'm not kidding. I was so scared shitless. And then we get on a freeway. And, you know, driving around town was okay. But when you get on that freeway, it's a whole different ball awesome. game. And, uh, you know, I had a bike to eat on St. Pete's Beach, come back. These fucking guys, Tony and Proby are driving too fast that I like. Yeah. I, I'm just driving like two and I, like, I got tunnel vision. I can't look left, can't look right. I'm just trying to keep up. And then all of a sudden beside me, I hear this horn honking. And I look, I finally muster up enough energy to take a little peek. And it's Proby beside me, no hands on a steering wheel with a camera taking a picture of me. <laughs> Oh, fuck. On the freeway. <laughs> on the freeway. On the freeway. I could barely look at him. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, I got home that night, and we, we had the night off the next or the day off the next day. We could have went out, but I was just so thankful to be just parking that thing, and and that's how I got broken into to riding a bike. So, but you I still know. you you still ride bikes, don't you? Didn't you? Yeah, do yeah. Part so of that, the fundraiser. Right. You still yeah, do the fundraiser, right? Yep. Yeah, so that's what Danny does that for cardiac arrest. Um, is that what it's for? Stuff. Okay. Yeah, yeah, that's that's how he died. But I mean, this is another thing that should be talked about too. Is you know, like what, what it was induced by what you know, synthetic opioids and the, that pandemic that's going around here. It's been around for a long time. It's got to change, and there's there's um, it's just uh, taking too many people's lives. And then you, you see it take the, the the toughest guy in the league down, and and, and you know what took him down. It was it was a heart attack, but it was obviously induced by other things going into his system. So it's it's a shame. But uh, so Bushy, speaking of that, speaking of that, it's good a time as any. Tell us what you do now. I have an idea. I know you you 
so you 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 have a hemp farm basically right um but how are you involved what got you there did it have anything to do with that stuff um seeing guys like that maybe go down the wrong path with the wrong kind of substances was it personal was it concussions what led you where you are now and would, i guess explain to everybody what you're doing yeah yeah so i retired in the uh january 2007 um and then um uh, right away that, that summer with 2000 summer, I got my real estate license. I, I, I was going to, you know, be a coach in Guelph, but I, I just, it was going to be better off for me to just to re-identify myself and, 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 and get out of the game and, and just focus on real estate. So my wife and I got licensed and, and we were doing that uh, starting in the summertime. And then, you know, I left the game pretty dependent on opioids Um Percocets, Vicodins, Ambien to sleep at night. You know, you're dealing with the time changes and they work. So they work good. You know, they they have a purpose. You know, you, you have surgery. Those first two, three, four days of surgery is pretty painful. But, you know, we learn and, and they're legal when we're playing and still are legal. It's, it's easy to get them from your doctors or your trainers. And, and you just kind of abuse them. It's nobody's fault but our own. And, and you know, you have a couple of beers with them and you feel no pain and you want to feel good, right? So... That kind of stayed with me um, for a while, uh, you know, most of my career. And, and then um, even post-retirement, I did not have an easy transition. Uh, you know, I got in a little bit of trouble with the police in the summer of 2006 and then retired, you know, that following January. And, um, and then, you know, here I am selling real estate and I still can't shake these pills. And then summer of 2009, to answer your question, uh, I was introduced to cannabis for medical purposes that I could get, I could apply to grow, have my own license under the medical marijuana access regulations, MMAR rules and regs, Health Canada. So I looked into that and, and um, I applied for it and I got my license in 2010 to grow for myself. Well, I didn't know how to grow. So I had a designated grow for me at another separate location. And the more I got into it, you know, I wasn't much of a weeder growing up because it, it was illegal. Like, Playing professional hockey, junior, sure I was, but professionally, I stayed in the system for 30 days, and and it's just you didn't want to get, you know, a bad piss test. So um, I started using cannabis more often, and and realizing that I, I didn't have a, a need to go after the opioids. I was I was transitioning off the opioids without even realizing I was doing it, and then I was like, I have no desire to even take these opioids anymore. I, I so you didn't I, go to rehab. I didn't go to rehab. No, oh, I, interesting. I just, yeah, no, I, I was just transitioning. And then I started like doing more investigation on the plant. And I, and I read this documentary documentary. It's called the union, the business behind marijuana. I think Adam Scorgy, somebody from out West there, amazing, uh, amazing. Uh, listen and watch. Um, and that, that it just, opened up my eyes. That's my waking moment. I say, after I watched that documentary on, on, you know, all the healing components of this plant and you know where it comes from and, and why it got pushed under the ground and, and it made it legal. And um, so, you know, 2010, 2011, by 2011, uh, almost I was completely off my opioids. I was able to throw everything out, not dependent at all. And then I applied for my let to be a licensed producer federally. So I could share this with the rest of the world. So 2013, I submit, submitted my application to become an LP and seven years later, TR, on April 2020, 420, I, I got my federal license. 
to grow cannabis legally indoors, to process it so we can make edibles and to sell it for medical purposes. So that's the, the business that I'm in now. And obviously the cannabis industry, it's, it's been really tough to navigate through that. It's always changed. A new, we're a new startup in a new industry. So there's a lot of moving parts going on right now, but I've got a lot of good people in place that are on my team that are a lot smarter than I am that are specialized in certain aspects of what we got to do to get through. So we ended up growing 200 acres of hemp last year, like this, like 2020. And uh, so, yeah, that's what we're doing now, selling hemp. So if you know anybody wants to buy some GACP certified hemp, call me. Wow. Okay. <laughs> what's the, what's the company name? It's called New Leaf Canada. So New Leaf Canada Inc. is the company that I founded back, you know, it started in 2010, but the name's changed a couple of times. It was, that's what it's called now is New Leaf Canada Inc. And then, um, so yeah, that's our main focus right now is, is growing hemp. And then, you know, in our licensed facility, that's 32,000 square feet. You know, if you had a product that you wanted to bring to the Canadian market that's working, you could do it under our roof instead of going through what I went through, going through the Health Canada process. You could call me and say, hey, Bushy, I got that. I want to make these gummy bears, these CBD gummy bears. Can I do it under your license? Yes. And then we'd work a deal out. I was actually just talking about that. That's what I, 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 as you know, I do a lot of writing and I do a lot of this stuff and I'm really worked up and I stumbled upon same thing. When I played, I didn't do much weed of anything really. I, I boozed and, you know, we had a good time, but for that reason too, I, I, I just said, what, what am I, I didn't know any healing properties of weed. I was thinking, let's get stoned and go to a concert. Why am I going to yeah. risk, you know, and then same sort of evolution. So now I don't want to put, I don't want to put, um, I don't want to underestimate what ad addicts or, or addiction is. I, I don't want to go. All I'm saying is that there's times in my life, especially when a little bit of depression, I didn't want to retire when I did. That was an injury and I felt I underachieved to that point And I really, really felt upset, but that was the transition. I, I was boozing a lot then. And that's kind of when I got, it was recommended. I'm like, Oh, and then I found smoke some weed and, and then it was just buy weed on the corner and you don't really know what's in it. You know, I can't believe for years and years. And sometimes I go, it's really working, but sometimes it would make me worse. But it's, again, because sativa indica, that's the tip of the iceberg. There's so many different kinds, but one thing it definitely did is that, you know, whether you're doing it every day or you're addicted or, or you're not too much booze and is not a good thing. I don't care what you wake up, you have a worse start to the day. You're hung over. At least for me, it's just not as good. But I found this stuff. A, I could drink a lot less, if at all. And I found I'm good. It helps me to write. It helps me to do this sort of thing and be creative, calm me down a little bit. And it's more the CBD. Um, did you know about CBD right from the... When I say that, I guess those who aren't educated... Two major compounds are THC and CBD, right? As far as I know, and the THC yeah. is what get you stoned. They're the most known, yeah. Okay, okay, there you go. So I know I'm barking up some sort of tree. The healing properties of CBD, is that a new thing or were you right on board with that 10 years ago? Um, no, we're talking about CBD. Uh, well, our, my, my company before was called New Leaf, was called A1 CBD. Um, okay, okay. Yeah. I, and I, and I guess, you know what, to, to rephrase or get to come at it from a different perspective, the key words that you just said to me were that you found yourself, you were doing a lot of opioids, almost to the point that you couldn't put them down. Now, all of a sudden, you do weed, not with the purpose of saying, fuck these opioids, but all of a sudden, you wake up one day and said, oh my goodness, I'm doing less of these. You're coming off, like, what I'm saying is that 
that works. Like AA is one form. AA is one form. Um, whatever. There's all kinds of uh, different organizations under that umbrella. But you did it just smoking weed. You found yourself or and, and ingesting it somehow. So is that a big thing? Like, do are, are anybody paying? Because no. No counselor, no addictions counselor wants to say, oh, you can solve this with this. But where cannabis is so, cannabis, it's also so much different. It should be in its category on its own. It does help. But I'm sure they frown upon it, you know, because no one's going to say, you know what? In order to get off the booze, you need to do coke. Right. But but in this case, in order to get off the opioid, this really helped and it's healthy. Is anybody using it as a therapy? Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of people that are using There's so much more to learn about that plant. There's so many, there's 140 different healing properties in that plant too. Um, you know, like right now, like I, I had my DNA, you could get your DNA tested, TR, and and I, I hear you because there's certain terpene profiles. Everyone talks about indica and sativa and the differences, but it's more about the, uh, the terpene profiles within that plant. There's so many different ones, right? So your DNA makeup, uh, against uh, a terpene like limonene or pinene that's in cannabis could react differently in your body than it would in mine. So, you know, it's, 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 it's really a science getting to a point where you can get your DNA tested and you can now and get it tested against certain terpene profiles and find that right medicine that works best for you. You know, so that's kind of where it's going. Um, where psilocybin is, is, is very similar. We're only dealing with one more, one molecule there. It's not as psilocybin is the big, um, that's magic that's in, in what's in mushrooms, right? Magic mushrooms. Yeah, yeah. So the the company that we 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 um we separated out of New Leaf was is a company called Serenity, and that is a mushroom company, and we're the first company in in uh, Jamaica to get approved for clinical trials. So we got a lot of good things coming down the pipe, TR, that I'd like to talk to you about later on. But um, but cannabis, I, I felt like totally transitioned me and it, and it helped me be a little bit more conscious of, of what I was actually putting into my body. You know what I mean? And, and yeah. where is it coming from and how is it made? And, um, you know, even they come right down to the, your basic nutraceuticals and your, in the food that you put in your body. I treat my body a hundred times better now than I ever did when I was playing a professional sport. It's, it's really sad. Like it, it's just, the inflammation that we you know we have accumulated over the years it was masked by opioids back in the day we weren't going to the root of the problem and fixing it we were just masking it with heavy drugs and alcohol yeah. and and of course we were younger so you feel a lot better but you know i'm almost 50 now i'm 48 years old and and i feel it every morning i'm not that heavy I, i'm 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 barely 188 pounds but i i I, you know, I, I'm pretty achy still, but if it wasn't for, you know, moving and, and eating better and, and taking the proper medication, um, it, 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 every day would be a, a serious struggle. So I, I feel like it's really got, helped me along the ways and it's created a lot of opportunities for me, you know, um, in so many different angles. And, and I'm just thankful to be here to, to share it. Well, definitely. And I, um, so the healing parts of cannabis and by the way when you said aches I, I, that's what i also notice about cbd helps with my aches and pains like legit it's not in my mind i've done it enough now because at first it seemed like that it seemed like magic and i would be like jesus why did i ever even think about taking a tramacet or a percocet um is that still a thing i broke my i'm still playing senior hockey probably not anymore after this but you know i was still living that life oh, i got a bad groin a uh, couple of advil before the game like like last year two years ago um now, psilocybin, uh, 
for those that don't know, that's th- that I guess would be a hallucinogen. I mean, that's what's in D- D- DMT, LSD, magic mushrooms. When I dealt with that bushy, when I say, I remember one time, I'm not going to mention names. I played on the St. John's Leaps and a bunch of us. First time I got on the mushrooms and it freaked me out. I never wanted to do them again. But a lot of people, you know, because I took a bag, like five grams, shoved them in my face, you know, to get stoned. I've since realized, especially last summer, the, the microdosing and I, listening to Riley Cote, to be honest, and Biz on, on Spit and Chicklets talk about this thing. So I tried it out. I mean, microd, I mean, like 0.2 milligrams. Is it like those tiny less little than, pills? Less than a gram. It's considered a microdosing. Yeah. Less okay. And, and up to a gram. I don't, I still have never in the last year taken any more than a gram for sure. But sometimes I'll take that gram if I'm uh, maybe want to write, say, a paper or, or a chapter of a book, or sometimes even just in the afternoon, things are going all right. I want to go for a walk uh, because it's one of those things. If you take too much, I, I think it can turn you off forever. But tell us the benefits of taking a little bit of a microdosing psilocybin. And how did you go from cannabis to learning about that? Yeah, you know, we're, well, we're in Jamaica. So what we have in Jamaica, federally licensed building, we also have, or what we have in Canada, we also have in Jamaica, federally licensed facility and processing. And in Jamaica is one of the two countries where psilocybin is legal. So it was, it was an easy, um, we're, we're in a health and wellness, we're an innovation company. And, um, you know, that's the industry that we work in. So we're, we're right on that right away. And, um, you know, how psilocybin, and, and we're focused on actual the microdosing. Um, you know, we can defer people to, to do macrodosing, you know, between four and seven grams, but they call that a hero's dose. But uh, our, our company is, is more focused on the microdosing. And, and where I find it helps me, TR, is when I've been microdosing probably for the last 18 months off and on, you know, three days on, uh, every other day, three to four times a week. And I find it, 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 makes, it, it helps me stay more focused, uh, concentrated. Um, it just makes the day a little bit brighter. You know, uh, I can't explain it. I, I, I feel, I feel a lot closer to nature too, for some reason. I, I yeah. just feel like, I don't know. It, it's just a, it's a very um, mindful consciousness uh, thing. And I think that, you know, our, our world is missing a lot of that. I think we get, we're all in this fast paced life where we're just running around trying to pay our bills. And we sometimes forget about, you know, just the basic necessities of life and just, you know, take some time to yourself to just kind of, you know, regroup and, regenerate and, and rethink some things and what's really important in your life. Keep it simple. You know what I find the biggest, I, I couldn't put my finger on it. I was trying to explain, cause I noticed right away the microdosing last summer, like it, it was obvious. I, I couldn't say enough about it because my experience with mushrooms is that, you know, I'm going to see demons and everything. I mean, it was so twisted because of the motivation of taking them the first time it changed, but, I find compassion. You, you, you know, if, if I think about something like, I don't know, I don't know, a buddy maybe that, you know, I had a, some kind of grudge with, I'll say, you know, what was I doing there? You know, like uh, Smitty's a good guy. Pick up the phone. Hey, dude, wh- what's going on? Not even apologize. Just say something positive. Leave that on a positive level and move on. And then my next relationship that day, maybe see the, you know, the good instead of the bad. It's slight. It's slight. I'm not saying I'm going around jumping around like Bugs Bunny, you know, passing out goodwill like <laughs> some priest or, but I, 
I definitely feel that I see the good side of things and I feel compassion for other people way more um, when that little door was opened, you know, and like I said, microdosing, I think it's where it's at, even in my uneducated uh, knowledge of it so far. Um, Go ahead. It's it's not, it's not, it's not psychoactive. It's not going to get you. It's not going to mess up your work day. You can still get through your day and sometimes with more clarity. With and, more clarity. You know, that's, that's where the difference is, I think. To go back to this arrest, and certainly I don't want to dwell on this, but I got to ask, uh, 2006 was when you get in this fight. You never played much in the hockey after that, six months, if a year. Um, what, yeah, what was the reason? It was late at night. You're coming out of a club, right? Tell us the story, because this is, as they go, this is a cult kind of legendary wouldn't say cult, I guess, but within hockey, some people have never heard of this story, but those who know Ryan Vandebush have heard about it. In 2006, I believe you knocked out a couple of cops in your hometown after the bar. Am I right? Am I wrong? Tell us. Well, yeah, you're kind of right. I, I hit a I hit a police officer. You know, here's another example that, you know, pick your spots and, and when to go hard. And again, I, I was, uh, I was, I knew the end, my end of my career was happening. There was a lot of transition going on. Um, my wife was pregnant. So this is July 1st weekend, 2006. And, and um, you know, uh, we were leaving on the following Monday. So it was a Sunday. And usually on a Sunday, we, we jump on a boat with a bunch of friends and we go out to a place called Potahawk and we have some, you know, we play some water volleyball out there and hang out. And, and you know, we were ready to go to Pittsburgh the following day to have my son. And I was excited that we we're going to do that. And, um, you know, people make drinks <laughs> and I, I make my own drinks and then I have a couple extras and you make some bad decisions and uh, mama bear goes home uh, to get ready for us to leave. Uh, she, she, you know, she gives me the, the green light to go hang out with my friends for one last time because we, we were to go to Pittsburgh to have, have my baby boy. And, um, so we were supposed to have the baby on a Wednesday. Well, I didn't get out of jail until the Thursday and, uh, get down to Pittsburgh, have the baby on a Saturday. But what happened was it was just, it was an incident where they're changing the laws in the bars then about smoking indoors. And somebody, you know, one of the guys I was with, they were smoking inside and, you know, Norfolk County is pretty much built on tobacco money for the most part. And some old farmers thought that they could still smoke in there. And one of the bouncers pulled one of them out and make a long story short. I, 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 someone comes in and says, Ryan, your, your friends there are getting his ass kicked. There's two bouncers on him, And naturally, and I didn't want to get in any trouble. I didn't want to go out. And, and then I ended up walking out just to see what was going on. And I went to pull the one bouncer off and there was, like I said, two on him. And then I don't know what happened from their TR. Like, I, I took a blow to the head um, and already I, Evan, you're, and you're pretty loaded, right? Yeah. So I was drinking all afternoon. Right. And, and then I, I took this blow to the head and I don't remember what happened. I was conscious, but I was, I, I was unconscious. So you ever, you've been in a fight where you've been hit before yep. it's either fight or flight. Right. Well, I wish the guy would have knocked me out, but he didn't. And I just lost my shit. And I don't, I fought a bouncer after that. Six cops tried to arrest me and I was tasered three times. I was tasered and pepper sprayed twice. 
And then I woke up to handcuffs uh, behind my back. And uh, turned out I, I, I hit a police officer and I broke his nose and I broke his orbital bone. And deservedly so, I deserved to be tasered and put in jail for five days and, and all that kind of stuff, pepper sprayed with my hands, you know, behind my back. I get it. But what I didn't like was I was getting sued for $10.2 million after that. Two weeks later, I got out of jail. We have a kid come back home. I'm in Canada now. And I get this letter saying, you're getting sued for $10.2 million. And I'm like, I can't even afford a point two. What are you talking about? I'm not you know, Rob Blake here. <laughs> even though Rob Blake is not that far from me, but <laughs> come on, I can make that kind of money. And so that was a little ridiculous. So that was, all, you know, that was part of the you know, learning curve, you know, retiring and transitioning into the real world and realizing that, you know, you're, you choose your own destiny and you make the decisions and, you know, you got to own that shit. So I, uh, it took me two years to get off that and, and uh, we got that settled and uh, didn't have to pay, you know, I think it was 18,000 bucks or whatever, but it wasn't, uh, it was a learning lesson, put it that way. And, and then um, started my real estate career and then got focused in, in the plant medicine shortly after that. <laughs> but it's true though, Bushy, you learned, that's, you did learn your lesson. There's, there's, oh, um... how can you not? Yeah. So, I mean, there's so many life lessons along the way and, and I'll be a life learner. I'm like, I, I continue to learn every day. We all are. Right. So you're the same way. And uh, we just keep on moving forward. That's all we can do. It's it's, you know, I've, I've often thought of myself, my uncle is a judge and um, mm-hmm. I've often thought the, the whole court, system fascinates me a, a we, we live in bits of democracy and kind of we can complain but it, it's it's it makes our society tick what fascinates me is if i was a judge you're looking down and you want to give like brad myers last week i mean look at his book i mean at, at some point though something resonated with him and uh a lot a lot of people you know are sitting there and if you were a judge you know you, you're hoping that whoever you're talking to is going to um listen or learn their lesson or whatever it might be but there's a chance if i hear a guy who doesn't have to be a hockey player is in a bar fairly tough drunk hit some cops i'm hoping this guy learns his lesson more often than not they don't um now did that have something to do so congrats by the way now did that have something to do with that incident um with this change uh you know, I know that, I don't know where opioids come into this and where they leave. Was that still a part of it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, no. I was putting everything into my body at that point in time. It didn't matter what it was. Um, I just wanted to, you know, just, I don't know. That's just the way I was back then. And um, and so I was still dependent. Uh, of course, I was 2006, so it was right in the peak of my opioids and everything else that I was doing. So um, that's... So I get out of jail in the middle of July, we have a kid and then, you know, I'm a free agent. And literally two weeks after I get out of jail, uh, I get a call from the Ottawa senators that they want to offer me a contract. And it was like, it was a two way 500 over 200. And I was like, eh, I'll wait. Maybe I'll get a one way. Never got it. Never got a sniff. Couldn't even get a trial in the American hockey league then. <laughs> so wow. Then, yeah. Wow. Yeah. You never know what. And so Lisa is your wife, is it? Was she Lisa? Yeah. Yeah. So she stuck with you there too. I mean, or, I mean, you know, you're, oh, my you're wife with has her. been amazing. My wife has been yeah. amazing. She's been with me from day one and she's from my hometown too. Grew up on a tobacco farm and, and just a s- sweet, sweet girl. And who was also diagnosed with cancer in 2018. She had breast cancer and, and, um, and has made a full recovery. Just had her last surgery. Good fuck. Cool. Last week. God, you just dropped that on me, man. I was sitting here cringe and I didn't know that. What yeah, a terrible yeah, no. thing. It's just, she's all right. 
Yeah, all, all, all good. So, um, yeah, no, and she had plant-based medicine too. Another, you know, like when she's going through her chemotherapy issues, I was researching this Rick Simpson oil, who's from Halifax, a Canadian boy, and he had this oil back out. He was talking about it on the internet back in, I think it was 2013. And when she was telling me she was, you know, she was nauseated. She wasn't eating. She was, you know, constipated. And I went back to my old files and I, and like, I ended up finding some Rick Simpson oil. And I don't know if you know what that is. It's a high THC concentrate and it comes in a syringe and you squeeze it out and it's like tar and you only need a ah. size of rice. Okay. It's like oil. It's just, I know exactly what you mean. Right. So she was doing, uh, you know, about a size of a grain of rice uh, on her finger in, in, uh, a day. Yeah, while she was doing chemo and what a difference that made. So after two weeks, she felt so good. She decided to go off of it to see how she was supposed to feel. And she went off of her other all medicine for, for, um, for 24 hours. And she was like, this, this, this stuff works. And she went back on the, on the oil. So there's just so many good things that are going to be coming out. And- that Listen, this is a great story outside of all this that you guys, I didn't know you, uh, you, Lisa was from your hometown. I did not know you guys were together that long. It's a great story. You've been the, this is a ride that you guys took together. How many kids you have? I've got two kids, grade nine and grade ten, and a boy and a girl. And uh, yeah, so Lisa is definitely focused on on you know while well, she's recovering now, but she's uh, she's my my partner in real estate. And she takes the reins right now in real estate, where you know I, I can focus on you know my other other businesses that I got going on right now. So, Well, listen, at some point, um, I just have a few lighthearted questions here now to end things. At some point, we'd love to see you you guys over here. And, you know, you spent two years here. But <laughs> downtown can be fun, but there's great oh, hiking. Right. There's all kinds of things that you probably didn't do here as a young 20s, 20-odd-year-old guy. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, I'm definitely coming back to you for sure. Okay, a few, few quick ones at the end here. Your favorite gangster movie of all time? Oh God, there's um, oh, I can't even think of the name of it right now. There's uh, Goodfellas, The Departed, De Casino. Goodfellas, Goodfellas. You said, yeah. Oh, really? That I'm not just saying it popped into my mind first because that's my favorite. Yeah. Uh, do you ever go fishing? Yes. I'm not a huge fisherman, but we do go out. growing up in Lake Erie. Uh, I, I, I go out and catch some bass and then uh, go into the deeper waters and catch some salmon. Nice. Uh, do you golf? Nah, used to, not so much anymore. Robert De Niro or Al Pacino? Al Pacino. Scarface. NHL. Should the homes wear white or dark? Oh, I, I like white. I, I, I don't know why I always think white jerseys should be at home. You lived in Chicago, White Sox or Cubs? Cubs. Did you go to any games, by the way? Side note, did you go to a lot of games? Yeah, usually it's this time of year when playoffs are starting, we catch the home opener. Beautiful. Chicago Stadium, yeah. One of my favorite places to have a beer, Wrigley Field. Yeah. Uh, and I love across the street how <laughs> they got seats on the top of the buildings. Just beautiful. Um, if you had to spend two weeks on an island with a cartoon character, who would it be? Oh, with a cartoon character, two weeks. I don't know. <laughs> uh, geez, I don't know. Bart Simpson, you'd make me laugh. Oh, he certainly would. That's a pretty good answer. I think he's getting a little bit of shit, too, and he's pretty handy. Bart would be a good guy. Um, you lived in New York, Yankees or Mets? Yankees. 
Have you known anyone who went on an American game show? No, I have not. Uh, it's funny. When I played in Boise, we went out to California, and Dan Shermerhorn got on Price is Right, and he got called down. <laughs> oh, no shit. He got on stage, yeah. Bit of a laugh. I used to do all that. I'm like, if I'm here, I might as well, you know. <laughs> uh, do you think there is a Bigfoot? Uh, no. Do you think there's life on other planets? Yeah. What superpower would you want if you could pick one? Not, I mean, you kind of represent Thor's hammer already, like in the caricature that is you. But what would you want? You, would you want to be able to fly? Would you want those a, eye lasers that Superman got? Yeah, Superman, Clark Kent, for sure. I want to be able to fly and then just be kind of mixing with the, the cities when I'm down on, on the ground. <laughs> That's a great answer. <laughs> okay look man do you have anything else to add um you know to promote anything basically i mean i asked you about your life after hockey and i know you got your hand in a few pots the biggest one being this hemp farm but do you want to promote anything else no no we're just uh nope not not right now tr i appreciate you uh having me on and, and talking about this and i know i appreciate your time for sure no sweat. I appreciate yours. It's great to talk to you again after uh, all these years. And the, the invitation is extended. I say it every time, but once in a while, one of my guests does come on over. You've already been here, uh, but love to see your family here soon. And if that's the case, you always got somewhere to stay and you have a tour guide. I'm going to leave you with lyrics. This, these ones this week are from the song Closing Time by Semisonic, which came out right in about the 2000, 2001, when you were hopping and bopping in the middle of your NHL career. And the quote is, the lyric is, every new beginning comes from some other beginning's end. And I think that pretty much can sum up Ryan Vandenbush, what he's doing now. You had an unbelievable uh unbelievable perspective on life and you made it to your top of, of your profession in your 20s and all that came with that the roller coaster ride that's up that's down that's punching that's scoring that's trying to make the team that's getting in bar fights all that embodied ryan vandenbush and now you've turned the page not only is it something new for your own positive mind it's something your family's involved in yourself you're helping other people and it's all in a positive way and i'm one of those people so not only for coming by my podcast but for recommending these things and we talk off here and i'll definitely be uh, coming to you for some uh, for some advice and some product. So thank you very much, Ryan Vandenbush. We'll talk to you again soon. Thanks, Tierra. Thanks for having me. There you have it. Ryan Vandenbush. Interesting cat. Uh, and he's, man, he's on the verge of, I think... Um, being a very successful businessman. He knows what he wants. This, anything to do with cannabis or psilocybin or the healing properties of hemp, mushrooms, whatever it might be, all that stuff is becoming more and more part of the mainstream culture, which is a good thing if it can help people. And uh, he's in the business at the right time, if you ask me. Uh, some of you asked me some questions. Let's get to those before I take off here. Got to go get my daughter from her camp in the laser tag camp, I think. Something during during Easter to keep her occupied. Um, why do I? <laughs> okay, so the what do I think? So one of you, Jerry, who's in Timmins, Ontario, 
which is overrepresented in my questions, by the way, Northern Ontario. So a lot of you like my show. Thanks. It's asking me what I think of if there's aliens or if there's Bigfoot, because I often ask these people at the end. That's one of the questions. I don't know about aliens. Actually, if I had to bet, I'd say yes. But what is it? Life on other planets is the question I usually ask. And life on other planets, yes. I don't need to get into how big the universe actually is. If you're listening to this and you're curious, type it in on YouTube. And it'll go like, you know, one of those external like pan out shots from the earth. And there's no way I can explain it. It's so big. If you take every single piece of sand on earth, right? Every single piece of sand and grain, all of that. And there's still way more stars in the universe. And every star um, has planets revolving around it. They're just rocks, right? It's all based on gravity. So the bigger the rock it holds the most gravity. So stars are huge masses that are dispersed throughout the universe. And rocks from basins, rocks go around them and they orbit because the gravity is pulling them in. And they, they, they fall into that orbitational, gravitational field, whatever it is. I'm certainly not big into physics. But what I'm saying is that I've read books from people who are there's a book called a brief history of time it's by stephen hawking who just passed away not long ago one of the smartest people ever and i couldn't really understand that so he got another one called a briefer history of time which makes it understandable um, to the everyday average human mind i suppose and i'm fascinated by all that so anyway long and short of it is that each one of those solar systems which is the rocks being the planets going around the center, which is the star. Right? There's billions of those just in our galaxy, and there's billions of galaxies in the universe, in just our corner of the universe. Um, so if we find, like, there might be life on Mars. People think, oh, come on, man, because you're picturing the aliens and shit. Shut up, T.R., you're bullshit. No, they looked under the surface, and they might have found bacteria. But you see, there's every, where there's bacteria... That's life, first of all. So that's really the extent of my question. Do you think there's life on other planets? Of course. It's in our universe, and there's billions and bi trillions and trillions and whatever number is of stars, and we can just look slightly um, close in our own universe. You know, they've, they've, they've discovered there might be life on one of Jupiter's moons in the water, aquatic life. Now, I'm not going to go further into physics because it's boring. But anyway, life on other planets, I would almost guarantee it. Now, what it looks like, I don't know if they're going around in flying saucers or if they look like aliens like we say. I wouldn't rule it out. It all got to come from somewhere. If you were to trace that back, um, sort of the thing I did in folklore, I used to enjoy doing that. But, like, you know, if you were to trace those stories back, there's a reason that people think they look like they look. Now, whether that's people going under a hypnosis years ago when all this or, or these stories became more prevalent than ever in the forties and fifties, maybe people were scared because of the nuclear age and they wanted to make up stories. And you know, the, the Superman came out of the depression. Why? Because people got nothing and they can live through Superman. Uh, it's a long story. Do I think there's life on other planets? Yes. Bigfoot. No. And 
the, the reason is simple. Bigfoot is a mammal. No, I mean, we don't really know because we don't have Bigfoot. But every culture has a Yeti or a Bigfoot or an abominable snowman or a, whatever it's going to be, or a Sam Squatch, as Bubbles from Trailer Park, Park Boys says. But if these are mammals, which, I mean, it looks to me like they are, uh, how long do they live? Without, you, you, we can't find one, so there can't be that many. Mammals have to multiply or they go extinct. So there can't be one Bigfoot walking around. You have to suspend belief for that which I do when I go to the movies. That's why I believe in Superman when I'm at the Cineplex. But when I walk out of Cineplex, I don't think Superman's going to save me. I don't think uh, Dorothy's got blown into Kansas in a tornado, and I certainly don't think there's a Sasquatch-type-looking thing anywhere. On top of all that, It'd be on Earth. We'd be able to find it, wouldn't we? I can see if it's in the ocean. Even then, you should be able to map it out somehow now. But you would think if we can do all the things we can do. We can put man on the moon. But we can't find a Sasquatch, a big, large, motherfucking, hairy mammal walking around B.C., walking around Colorado, and we can't see this thing. It just doesn't make any sense. I tend to go with science. And although neither one of those things have been proven, I'm pretty sure there's life out there, and I'm pretty sure there's no Bigfoot. And that's my answer. <laughs> Jerry, thanks for the question. Terry, do you think the Leafs have a shot at the cup? And this one comes from Chloe in Sweden. In Sweden. Well, thanks for listening, Chloe. Um. I think they have a shot at the cup. I think it's hard to judge with no, you know, there's teams aren't playing each other. I think the Canadian division is a good division though. I do. The Canucks, unfortunately now are totally done. Calgary look like they don't give a shit and Ottawa, although doing, if you were to look at it from the outside, looking in, didn't know much about hockey. You'd think, well, Ottawa suck. Well, Kind of, but kind of not. They got a lot of prospects. They got a great coach, and I think they're only on an upward curve. That's what I think. I think they're getting better. They're going to trend in the right direction. Calgary, I think, are trending in the wrong direction, and Vancouver might be a write-off for the whole year. So that leaves us four teams, Winnipeg, Edmonton, Montreal, and Toronto. And I think either one of these teams, yes, can win it. I think Montreal has the hardest shot because every year they get deep into the playoffs or they don't, but if they do... Wherever they go, they don't, in my mind, have enough stamina, grit. They, they got good players, but are they, you know, do they, can they withstand the playoffs? I don't know. They have more grit than they ever did, so it's very possible. They're a great team, and in these day and age, do you need it? Well, you still need to be, you need to be resilient, because I don't care if there's no hitting. Playing 28 games in the playoffs is hard to do. And uh, so it depends on that. But who has the best option, uh, chance? I still think Toronto. Uh, Edmonton are finally starting to play a little bit like they were advertised years ago. And I think they're coming to fruition later than they should, but... They're a force, and they should be. They got some great players, and finally, on top of 
Dreisaitl and uh, McDavid. Nurse is having a great year, man. Did anybody see this? Look at his goals, his points. I think he's got 13 or 14 snipes. That's bonus, right? Guys like that start start lighting fire. Yamamoto from Spokane. Uh, he's showing a lot of promise. Uh, anyway, and on and on. And they're getting great goaltending from goaltenders that uh, you wouldn't have thought. You wouldn't have thunk it. So do I cheer for anybody like I've said before? Not really. You asked me if the Leafs have a shot of winning it. Yes, I certainly think they do. But it's going to be hard to judge anybody until the playoffs start because, I mean, I think it's a great division, but maybe not. Maybe if they're down playing other teams, the Canadian division is, is weaker. Who knows? Which is what makes it all the more exciting. Am I down about that? Not at all. I think it's going to be a very exciting playoff one way or the other. Uh, if you're in town, TJ's Pub, Greensleeves, check it out downtown. we got some great entertainment. Uh, St. John's is starting to liven up. Springtime is here, and I'm loving it. And it seems to me a lot of other Newfoundlanders are as well. It was a drizzle today, and there was more people out walking and running than I've seen in, uh, in summers in some other years. Uh, Wedgwood Cafe, check it out. They're back on the go again. Their food is rocking and rolling. Peter Wedgwood for all your catering needs. Penny Posh, Designs, awesome. Women's Wear Redimagined. Check that out, at Danielle, my ex, at pennyposhdesigns.com. Or shoot me a note, and I know that she's got some great merchandise. I love the hoodies, $129. I can certainly get you a deal if you want to throw in, um, if you want a book thrown in and or a picture, just uh, shoot me a note at terryryan2020 at gmail.com. Of course, if you want a book personalized, you'll hit me up there too. Uh, that's about it for this week. I think we've gone on long enough. Thanks to my great guest, Ryan Vandenbush. Thanks to my sponsors and hope and thanks to all my listeners for tuning in again for another week. We'll be back very soon. It's closing time. Every new beginning comes from some other beginnings end. True that catch you on the rebound. Thanks for tuning in. Cheers.